You can be seated. Several years ago, a, a study was done of parents, specifically parents of kids 10 and under. And the study centered around this question, what do your kids want to be when they grow up? And the answers I found pretty comical, especially that number 10, these are kids 10 and under, by the way, 4,000 parents, they were asked this. And number 10, the kids wanted to be Santa when they grew up, which was just, just awesome. I love that. Was, I didn't expect that one at all. So that was fun. Uh, number nine was police officers. Number eight was chefs. Number seven was astronauts. Number six was a prince or a princess, which apparently is, is something that people are stopping doing these days. Uh, then number five was a teacher. Number four was the president. Number three was doctors. Number two was surprising, but if you think about the world we live in, not so much. Number two was a celebrity. And then uh, number one was a superhero. Thank you, Marvel. So that was the list. And, and uh, you know, I, I've shared with you that when I, uh, when I grew up, I wanted to be a garbage man, which somehow didn't make the list. I think that was somewhere down pretty low. But of all the things I wanted to be when I grew up, and it changed over time, like it probably did for you, I can tell you the one thing that I never wanted to be growing up. And that was a pastor. <laughs> it was the only thing that I ever just said, no, that, that's not what I want to do. In fact, when I was 15 years old, I told somebody that it would be a cold day in hell when I was a pastor. And so everybody laughs about that now because you know what I do. Uh, but back then, the, the reason why is that um, when you grow up as the, the son of a pastor, you kind of see how the sausage is made. I know that sounds a little bit gross. Uh, maybe I need a better metaphor for that. Um, but you see behind the scenes the good and the bad. And uh, being an adolescent is hard enough. Being a teenager is hard enough. But it's even harder when you're in the middle of the stuff that our family went through in my teenage years. And so I didn't say I didn't want to be a pastor or it'd be a cold day in hell and I'd be a pastor because I hated God. I didn't say that because I, you know, kicked my faith. I said that because I saw the sin that was present in my dad's workplace. I saw the brokenness that was there. And I said, I don't want that. I don't want to deal with that. And that's where I want to begin today because we're in a series talking about faith at work. We're trying to, in these three weeks as we begin the year, trying to bridge the gap that exists between faith and work in our culture. Because we said last week as we started this series that, that for many of us, there's, there's a giant chasm between our faith and our view of work. And if you weren't here last week, we, we kicked off this series and walked through seven fundamentals from scripture about work. If you missed the message, I'd encourage you to go online and watch it because this message kind of builds on that. Last week's question was, why does work matter? Why does work matter more to God than it matters to us? And how do we get his view on our work? But today what I want to do is to answer another question. And that question is, why is work so hard? Why is, why is our work a struggle? Why do we get to those places where we go, I don't want anything to do with that because of what I've seen? And I think that answer to that question, at least initially, comes at the very beginning of the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Genesis chapter 2. If you're new to church or new to the Bible, you're in luck because this is the easiest book to find in the Bible. Genesis is the very beginning of the Bible. 
And we're going to read from Genesis 2 and then from Genesis 3. And we take the Bible seriously around Cornerstone. We take ourselves not so seriously, but we take the Bible seriously. And so I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God's word this morning as we begin this message. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, if you look over in Genesis 3 or scroll over on your digital Bible, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God, we pray as we open your word this morning that you would open our hearts. That we wouldn't just hear from you, but we'd receive the word and the message you have for us. And then that we would adapt and shift the way that we live in light of it. In light of encountering you and the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I've spent the better part of the last two decades preparing for and working in the role that I now have. I've got two degrees in biblical studies, and it's, it's pretty rare that I stumble on something that I literally have never thought before. I don't have all the answers, so people will show me perspectives and shades, and I go, oh, i never seen it that way before, but I can see where you're coming from on that. It's pretty rare that I stumble on an idea and go, oh my gosh, I've never even conceived of that idea before. And that happened to me over the last couple of weeks as I prepared for this message, as I read through that text, because I was reading through one of the resources that I'm using to prepare for this series, and the writer made a point that literally stopped me in my tracks. And that point was that the first sin happened at work. I mean, if you think about it, Genesis 2.15 says that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And then in the very next chapter, while Adam and Eve are at that job site, sin enters the world. Now, yes, you you could also argue the first sin happened in marriage, or the first sin happened in family, but this isn't a series on work and on family and marriage. This is a series on work. But if you think about it, the very first sin happened at work, and that's the reason why for 2,000 years and 3,000 years or 4,000 years or how many thousand years you think it's been since Adam and Eve, that definitely isn't the series today. The experience we've all had is that work isn't a curse, but work is certainly under the curse. Now, I know some of you think that work is a curse. Like, it's the reason, hey, Adam and Eve, you ate the fruit, and so now we got to work. No, no, no. Read your Bible. Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. God gives them work to do. Then sin comes. Work isn't a curse, but work is certainly under a curse. Work is impacted by our sin. That's the reason why it's so hard. That in the same way that sin is inescapable in every relationship you have, sin is inescapable in every work place that we enter. It's inescapable in every job and task that we do. And that's why this is our big idea for this morning. That if sin first happened at work, 
then we should expect to battle sin in our work too. There's a lot of things that happen to us in any given week that are surprises. There are some things that are going to happen to you tomorrow that you're not going to see coming. Some things that are going to happen on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. I mean, things may happen later today that, that, that surprise you, that you don't see coming. But the one thing that you should see coming is that when you go to work, whatever your work is, you're going to battle sin there. If your job is caring for children and raising them, you're certainly going to battle sin there. If you're caring for an elderly parent, you're going to battle sin there. If you go to teach children or you go to deliver a product to market or you go to bring health care to someone or you help someone overcome their dysfunction, if you fix servers or you are a server, you are going to battle sin in that workplace. And today I want to gets you thinking about what that sin might be. I'm going to share with you today four temptations that we face at work. And I had to stop at four because this message has to end at some point, you know? So these aren't the only four that we face, but they're four big ones. They're four common ones. And the first one is compartmentalizing. In our work, we face the temptation to compartmentalize. And this is so powerful and potent and pervasive because we live in a world where many of us have never, ever connected our faith in our work. And so as a result, we are skilled and experienced. We've got a lot in our background that sets us up to set our faith aside so we can get our work done. It's compartmentalization that gives us the ability to lie at work because we compartmentalize that part of ourselves that raises questions about that. It's the reason why we can gossip at work. It's the reason why we can hold on to the power we have or fight to get more. It's the reason why we can commit infidelity. Because we break off in our mind that little section that is our faith, and we set that over here so that we can be effective. So that we can get the job done. Humans are good at a lot of things. But one of the things that we're best at is self-deception. I mean, we talk about people who are trying to deceive us, people who are trying to tell us fake news or market stuff to us that's not true. And, And while that may be true, the best person to ever lie to you is you. And we compartmentalize our faith in the context of our work it often leads us to compromise. What begins in a simple, oh, this doesn't matter because this doesn't really impact that, opens the door and it walks us down that road. I first met John, my friend John Randalls, in the mid-90s. And from that time over the next 20 years, as I heard him speak and as I hosted him and had meals with him, he asked me a question again and again and again. He asked it in the context of his work as a pastor and an evangelist and a chaplain and a retreat speaker, and a coach, and a mentor, and a friend. John was always asking us, do you change the room, or does the room change you? And when you compartmentalize yourself, when I compartmentalize myself, what that means is that you and I, we morph and shift ourselves depending on each room we walk in so that there's no longer one us, but there's a variety of uses to draw on from our tool belt to get the job done in any environment we enter. Do you change the room? 
Or does the room change you? It's the first temptation. Second temptation is defining our identity by our work. Defining our identity by our work. It's so easy. People ask you, second question, whenever you meet them, what do you do? Your conversations probably keep going after that. Mine stop. That's all I need to say, you know. I'm a pastor. Ooh, okay, well, I'm going back to the drink table, you know. Um, but we define ourselves by our work. This is the reason why we feel good about ourselves when we make more money. And we feel bad about ourselves when we make less. If you define yourself by your work, then your ego gets inflated when you succeed and you feel crushed when you fail. When you define your identity by your work, the rejection of other people crushes your soul. And you're always waiting on somebody to give you a piece of feedback to feel better about yourself. Defining our identity by our work is so, so dangerous. And in our culture, which has elevated work to God-like status, it's no wonder that this becomes a transcendent issue. A good question to ask if you're going, I'm not sure if I struggle with this, is who would you be if you couldn't do that work anymore? Who would you be if you lost that job? Who would you be if you lost that ability? Who would you be? And if that question causes your heart to race a little bit, if someone just kicked you in the shins who's sitting next to you, if you felt yourself sweat a little bit more, this might be the temptation that takes you down. I'll tell you, this is one of the two that I'm going to share with you today that I wrestle with the most. Defining my identity by my work. Number three is miss, missing or missed opportunities. Missing opportunities. For some of us, when it comes to our work, we are tempted to think that somehow we are missing opportunities because of something that's true about us. We say, well, I'm just too old to do that work anymore. I'm too old to be used anymore. On the other end, we go, I'm, I'm too young. I, it, that's going to start later on. I can just do what I want right now. You go, man, I, I've made too many mistakes. I'm too broken. I'm too messed up. I'm too much of a liability to be used or impacted. Or we go, I'm just, there's too much change. I can't keep up. I don't have the skills anymore. I don't know what to do. That to me is how I test myself if I'm struggling with this. I, I look for this sentence to appear in my vocabulary. I'm too blank for blank. I, I put up barriers as the reasons why I can't seize the opportunities and I'm tempted to miss them. I'm tempted to let them go by because of something that's true about me or that's not true enough. Maybe that's the reason you're here in Prescott. You feel like you're too something and you think that for some reason then God can't use you or work through you. Temptation number four is working without resting. Working without resting. I think this is maybe the one that hits our culture the most. 
Because we're living at a time in which we find it nearly impossible to rest. The data that we're now getting on overwork is staggering. What we're finding is that we are working more and more and more and more. We're becoming less and less effective and certainly less and less healthy. And if you want to know where overwork is taking America, just look at Japan. They're a preview of the future where it's now normal to work over 100 hours a week. And as the suicide rate grows, so does the expectations of people in the workplace. There was an era where only certain people were on call and always accessible. If you grew up the son of a doctor, you know, if you grew up as the son or daughter of a first responder, you expected the person to be on call. Well, now because of these, we're always all on call. And the problem is, is that these give us like ridiculous skills. I mean, if the Jetsons saw this, they would be super excited. They'd be bummed. We don't have flying cars yet like I am, but, but they would be so excited at these skills that we have. And we figured out so many amazing things to do with the technology that we have. We just haven't figured out how to be healthy while we do that. These things have taught us how to work more. They just haven't taught us how to rest more. And many of us are finding ourselves more depressed, more anxious, more mentally and emotionally unwell as we work without resting. And if this is a temptation you struggle with, this is the question you have to ask yourself. When's the last time you truly disconnected and rested? Now, I didn't ask when the last time you went on vacation was. Because for many of us, vacation is that season where we work when we're not at work. This is the other one I struggle with. I can remember being 20, being on vacation, and being on my phone with the office. And my mom said, son, you're 20. You should be able to enjoy a day on the beach without getting phone calls from work. She was right. But I don't rest well. And even when I'm not at work physically, it's hard to not be at work mentally. And because I'm an arrogant sinner, I convince myself that my work really matters. And so therefore I'm above rest. Say, Scott, if these are all the temptations that we face, well, then how do we battle them? Well, temptation does to you what it does to me. It tells us lies and half-truths. So the way you fight temptation is you tell temptation the truth in the place where it's deceiving you. And I want to share with you this morning, the time we have left, four truths that you need to tell temptation if you are tempted in the context of your work. And here's the first one. That all work is done for God, it's worship. All work, no matter whether you get paid for it or not, whether you have a boss or not, whether you can identify the person you're doing the work for in terms of the customer or the client, your ultimate boss is God. And he's the one you're ultimately doing the work for. 
In Colossians 3.17, we read the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He continues in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when we begin to recognize that all of our work is ultimately an act of worship to God, what it does is so powerful because this view frees us from two things. It frees us from overwork and it frees us from underwork. There was an era where um, the main issue in culture was what the Old Testament King James called sloth. Sloth is a great word. Lots of words in the King James I'm glad that we left behind in 1611. Uh, but sloth is one I'm bummed about because that's a great word. And, and if you wrestle with sloth, your temptation is underwork and laziness. And when you realize that that work you're doing, you're doing it for God, well, you can't underwork. You can't be sloth. He wants your best. He deserves your best. It frees you from underwork. But on the other side, if you're tempted to overwork and never stop working and you feel this pressure to perform, well, let me ask this. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon before? How many of you have seen a sunset? How many of you have seen a waterfall? And you're going to do better than that? The God who made the Grand Canyon, sunrises, sunsets, and waterfalls, you're going to impress by by literally killing yourself with your work? No way! So when you do it for him, it frees you from that sloth and that underwork, and it frees you from that, that overwork where you literally put yourself in the grave through your work. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. In, in England, you can go visit now uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, and it was built over many decades And there's an apocryphal story about St. Paul's Cathedral that there was a father who took his children to go see the work that was being done. And as they were walking on the street, they they walked by the stonemasons. And he asked one of the stonemasons, the father did, what are you doing? And the stonemason said, I'm cutting stone. He asked another stonemason, what are you doing? And the stonemason said, I'm building a cathedral. He asked the third stonemason, what are you doing? And he said, I am helping people worship. When you recognize that your perspective is not just, I'm doing this work for this person, but I'm doing this work as an act of worship to God, it changes your perspective and it pushes back on the temptations that you face. Number two, you tell temptation the truth by telling temptation what you do isn't who you are. What you do flows from and expresses who you are. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of scripture, we read, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This summary of both On one hand, our identity, we've been saved by grace. It wasn't our works. It was a gift from God. We have no reason to boast. 
And on the other side, this description of our works, that we are God's work and we're created to do good works, summarizes the essence of how God designed us to live with him. Gullickson's mom and dad, can you come up here real quick? Yes, right now. Come up on stage. This is not planned. I know Michelle loves being on stage. And you've been on stage twice in three weeks. I know you're going to kill me for this, but it's okay. So uh, they're going to help me in this little illustration right here. Why don't you sit right here? And then you can come over here. You guys are going to share this, and then you're going to hold this too. You got, you got double duty, okay? So this is how most of us live life. We live life that what we do is who we are. What we do becomes the definition of who we are. And we get to the place where we don't even know who we are without that anymore. And I started out with the arrow because I think most of us think it's, well, what I do is an expression of who I am. But, but in actuality, it's more like this. For most of us, this is the equation that we live And what is so dangerous about this equation, if you're living like this, is there is a day coming where this is going to get taken away. That day could be tomorrow because of an accident or an illness, or it could be in 20 years where your kids move out and you're no longer raising them, or it could be in 30 or 40 years when you retire, or it could be in a month when they downsize restructure. But if this is taken away, who are you? This is so dangerous, not for your work, but for your soul. And a little move could change everything. If you could just change the arrow. If who you are began to inform what you did, this could go away and you'd still have this. This wouldn't change. This could morph and adapt. You could change careers. You could change towns. You could change jobs. Your kids could grow up and graduate. You could retire and you would still be stable and strong. See, in the scriptures, God tells us who we are, saved by grace, not by works. And then and only then does he go to what we do. Because he doesn't ever want us to get these flipped. He wants us to always know this is who we are, and we didn't do a darn thing to receive it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You're off the hook for a while, I promise. That makes sense? Changes everything. Number three, number three. God designed us to live a healthy rhythm of work and rest. So we are tempted to work without resting, yet God designed us and intended us to live this pattern of work and rest. Nestled in the middle of Hebrews is a passage that most of us have overlooked in Hebrews 4 where it says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. See, see, work is worship to God 
but rest is too. Adam is created on the sixth day. You see that in Genesis 2. And on Adam's very first full day on earth, he rests with God. God didn't invite him. Okay, Adam, you're here now. Work your butt off, buddy. We got stuff to do. He makes him and then says, hey, we're going to start with rest. There's so many of us, we think rest is a reward for working hard. And we're working for rest. What would happen if you started working from rest? From the rest you already have with God. One of the most famous Psalms is Psalm 23. And I love where it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. There's this invitation to rest with God that so many of us need on a soul level. But the problem is, is if you're like me and you don't rest well, you rarely ever choose rest. And when I was in a season and I wasn't resting well, one of my friends told me this profound truth. He said, Scott, you can either rest or God will make you rest. In the text, it says, he makes me lie down by green pastures. You can either rest or you'll be made rest when you wake up in a hospital room. You can either choose this pattern of rest that God intended or you can let yourself burn out and then be forced into it. I find it so funny that the Ten Commandments include all these things that we would say that's terrible, that's bad, there's no argument for Coveting what's your neighbor's, bearing false witness, stealing, adultery, murder, worshiping other gods, making idols and worshiping them, taking God's name in vain, dishonoring your father and mother. But right there, nestled at number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is the most broken of the Ten Commandments and the one that we are all comfortable breaking and we justify it to ourselves all the time. Well, that's Old Testament. We don't need that. And by kicking the Sabbath, we kicked rest. And friends, your phone can live at a pace that will kill your body. It will kill your soul. You weren't designed to live at the pace of your phone and your technology. You were designed to live at a pace of work and rest. Number four, we serve a no-limits God. I'm so glad that we serve a no-limits God because this is the truth that we can take our temptation when we say, I'm too much of this or too little of that or I'm too far gone in this direction or not enough of this. We can tell our temptation that we serve a God who has no limits to who he uses and how he uses them. I love the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. In Joshua 14, we read the words of Caleb who says, and now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and for coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim are there with great fortified cities. It may be that while the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. 85 years old, Caleb says, I'm not dead. And guess what? God's not done. 
He says, I don't want an easy life for the rest of my life. Give me the hardest territory to conquer and God will do what he said and he will give me that land. That's why it's so important that we recognize that there is no limit to when God is done using you until there is no longer a you to use. And so if you're saying I'm too old to be used by God, there you go, Caleb. 85, without modern technology to assist in the aging process, saying, I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. But if you're on the other side and say, maybe you're saying, Scott, I'm, I'm not that old. I'm really, really young. Well, there's a truth for you because I think there's a, a feeling today that as adolescence gets prolonged, you go, I'm just going to wait my time in my 30s when God will use me and I'll just waste my time until then. I'm on my parents' insurance until I'm 26. I'll live at home until I'm 28. 1 Timothy 4 says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. As a church, we believe in empowering the next generation because we believe they are the now generation. And we worship a God that doesn't ever decide he can't use a person because they're not old enough yet. In the Old Testament, a young boy named Josiah becomes king at eight. I have a seven and a half year old. This morning, while I was preaching at our nine o'clock service, I realized that he's half a year away from where Josiah was when he became king. And I was terrified. My son can't even be trusted with stuffed animals, much less an entire nation. (laughs) But you know what that young boy did? He took a nation that had turned its heart to false gods and foreign nations, and he turned him back to God. At eight. Don't waste the period in your life where God wants to do his best work. In the back of your head, there's some next steps I want to guide you through before we chat with a friend this morning. And the first one is this. If you're going to overcome these temptations at work, you have to begin by preaching the gospel to yourself every day. You say, Scott, what does that mean? Well, for me, what that means is getting up in the morning before I go to the the place where I'm tempted to not rest and where I'm tempted to define my identity by my work. And I stand in front of the mirror. And I don't do this every day. But on the days I remember to do, I stand in front of the mirror and I go, Savage, you're a mess. And if it wasn't for God, where would you be? You have so many weaknesses and so many struggles. There's so many things that you're not good at and that you're so bad at that it could take you out. And God knows them all. He knows you better than everyone. And he loves you more than anyone. And while you were a mess, he came for you. He came because he loves you and he's come to redeem you. And because he died for you today, you have nothing to lose and you have nothing to prove. It doesn't matter if you go out there and everybody loves what you do. It doesn't matter if you go out there and everybody hates what you do. When you come home tonight, he's going to love you the exact same amount as he does right now. And there's nothing you can do to earn more because you already have it all. 
So be free today. And go do what he told you to do. And that changes everything. Because I'm not sure if you know, but sometimes people get mad at church. Sometimes they leave one church and go to another church. People leave ours and go to Epi's. People leave Epi's and come to ours. Same people who left Epi's and came to ours go back to Epi's. And if you don't preach the gospel to yourself, your identity gets caught up in that cycle. And I preach the gospel to myself so that my worth and value doesn't change based upon whether you come or go. That's why you preach the gospel to yourself. Number two, identify your temptation. So is it one of those four? Or is it one of the 4,000 more? but figure out your temptation so that you know what is going to come your way. What is your vulnerability? Number three, pick a truth. One of those truths we shared and meditate on the corresponding verses. There's a reason why the psalmist said, I have hidden my, in my heart, God, your word. Why? That I might not sin against you. The psalmist knew that temptation was coming and he prepared in advance by meditating and hiding on the truth of God's word so that he could be delivered in it. And then number four, share with your group or a friend for prayer, accountability, and encouragement. If you know what your temptation is, tell somebody. My wife, my friends who are here today, they, they know that two and four temptations, those are mine. So they ask me about it. So if on my day off, I'm emailing them, they go, what are you doing? My wife will ask me on Fridays, hey, you working today? Do you need to be? She takes my phone away, like I'm a child, because apparently I am. Because I'm not that strong. Neither are you. And when you become vulnerable and you let somebody into that place, you gain power over that thing. So I'm going to invite out right now Dave Richards, who's one of our elders, and he's going to chat with us for a second. So welcome, Dave. Thank you, Chris. So Dave uh, has been a part of Cornerstone for, I think, uh, almost seven years now. And uh, he's actually the chairman of our elders. And Dave, tell us what you do uh, for work. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, Cornerstone. So after 24 years in the financial industry, I started a company where I am a business and performance coach and consultant for organizations, business leaders, and entrepreneurs. So uh, spent over you know 20 years in the financial industry, banking, mortgage, all that stuff. Um, and uh, and you know faith has been part of your life for a long time. Your dad was a pastor too. So when you hear that phrase, faith at work, right here. Where does that trigger for you? Where does your mind go? I was really excited about the series title, um, and maybe it was a word association, but when I first saw Faith at Work, immediately 
uh, went to James 2.26, right? So faith apart from work is dead. And so as I thought about that a little bit further, kind of two areas, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, though, in terms of, you know, that God calls us not to uh, compartmentalize, right? He doesn't want part of us. He wants all of us and surrendering all. And that kind of, you know, for me resonates that, you know, uh, that Jesus's imprints should be in all areas of my life. And so two, two points um, that came to mind within that was, number one is carrying a God view of people. And so really, you know, if he created them in his image, you know, I should carry myself in that way. And so I have a reminder every day um, to really walk in a manner that, uh, that really shows value or values people, that believes in people and has them feel that I believe in them and then unconditionally love them. And then the second part um, goes with what you're sharing uh, about kind of what we do and how we do it. And uh, instantly it went back to a story of my father, uh, 20 years uh, pastor, uh, passed away a year ago. And uh, there was a story that was shared with me uh, where he was sitting with an associate pastor of his uh, and just kind of had a little bit of idle time. And, just, and he just said, hey, Brandon, we got to get up. We got to clean the toilets of the church. And went over and uh, and cleaned the toilets. And during that time, they laughed and sang and rejoiced uh, God. And so, you know, not only doing the right thing, right, but on top of that, doing it in the right way, in the right heart. And so that that really just showed me, you know, Jesus's imprints. So I shared four temptations today, and I'm sure there's some of those that the people you coach battle. There's probably some that you battle. Um, you know, where did your mind go? What are the ones you focused on? And, and in your work as a coach, how do you help people uh, that you're coaching who are people of faith overcome those particular temptations? Yeah, you know, um, I can honestly say that I've struggled with uh, all four, right, at different stages of life or different stages of career-wise. I think um, instantly I go to the fourth temptation and then leveraging the two. Working without resting. Yep, working without resting, uh, partly because it's probably an area that I struggle um, most uh, personally uh, throughout time. And certainly you talked about accountability and and getting your phone taken away. I've had that done uh, in my household also from Amber. Um, but uh, even with working with clients, right? So a lot of times I get called in when um, when underperformance is happening, right? So challenges are happening within the company or an individual. They're not doing well, uh, or they're looking to take it to the next level. And instantaneously, uh, over time, the first thing I look at is what their rhythms are with rest and, uh, and whether they're unhealthy and healthy. Uh, and most of the time, uh, that's a quick, easy place for me to sit with because we tend to over control. And so a lot of times if we've got an achievement oriented mentality, we can o- try to over control or do the things that we, uh, we feel like we can do and we're trying to assert too much. Um, and so it's kind of backing that off with them and so kind of releasing. And so that kind of comes into the three and four. And so I see that in my life, right? There's been times in which God has really hit me upside the head and forced me to lie down um, when I'm trying to do too much of the controllables and uh, not surrendering to him first. Well, I found it fascinating. We were talking and you basically, and I think this is kind of summarizing what you just said, but it took for me to understanding this, that when, when people overwork, they actually see a decline in their performance. But when they can learn to rest... Even though it's counterintuitive, yes. it actually improves their work. Yeah, it, it's amazing because I get into those conversations and instantaneously, they or, or they the, the first thought is that's not going to work, Dave. That's just not going to work. I have to do more. I've, too I've got to too do. much to do. And so when we start pulling back things, and then they start seeing the results, and it really, you know, the empowerment of others, things like that start coming out. 
um, they realize, and then they just feel better, right? And so then they're, they're, they show up in a higher quality way. I mean, there's, there's so much to that. And obviously, you know, the perfect, our, our perfect creator, mm -hmm. right, made it that way. And then, so there's a reason for it. So That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for what you do and how you're helping lead our church. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Dave. I'm going to invite our band to come out right now. And, and we're going to conclude the service today in, I think, a unique way. I think when we talk about our work and we talk about our giftedness, uh, our brains uh, just naturally go to the things that we're good at, to our strengths. Um, we all like to feel strong. We all like to feel like we're a success. And yet the, the reason that we are here, I don't know why you came today. The reason why I come to church is because I'm broken. If I didn't have any needs, if all I had was strengths and giftedness, I just would keep working. I wouldn't pause in my week to come here. The reason why we come together is not that we are whole. The reason we come here is because we're broken. The reason we come here is not because we're strong. The reason why we come here is because we're weak. And in the context of our work, we get the opportunity to recognize and face that. And I think we like to think at some point we're going to get beyond the place where we're still broken. Yet the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 4 that we hold this treasure of God in jars of clay. That we're these fragile, broken creatures in need of his amazing grace. And what he promises to do is if we will embrace our brokenness, our imperfections, our weaknesses, that he will shine greatest, not when we're strongest, but when we're weakest. And so this morning, we're going to conclude with a song called Broken Vessels. It's built around the words of that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And I'm just going to invite you during this time to stand or to sit or to close your eyes and reflect on these words. And maybe you've made a mess of things in your work. Maybe you've never been more reminded of how broken and imperfect you are. And you may hate to be in that place. But that is actually the place where God meets us where we need him and where he does his best work. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.